Well, welcome to the very first episode of The Pod Against America. And joining me is my, my friend, Jim Baker. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rob. Uh, Jim, I believe um, you are an incredibly experienced podcaster, so I'm wondering if I should just hand the baton to you right now. I've never podcasted before. Have you ever listened to a podcast? Uh, does uh, Bob and Ray count in the 70s? That's kind of what they were doing, right? It is kind of what they were and doing. And Gene Shepard. I used to listen to Gene Shepard a lot. Yep. It, yeah. it really, I, I mean, we people pretend that podcasts and blogs are something new, but essentially they've existed for many decades in slightly different forms. Like, I mean, the only difference in a really a podcast, the, the only difference between that and good radio is that you can listen to a podcast whenever you want on your phone. But otherwise, I mean, uh, This American Life was great radio before it was a podcast. Bob and Ray were doing these amazing bits. Today they would podcast, but back then they were on the radio. So uh, not really... There's really not a lot to learn, I don't think, except that you can do more different. You can, there's room for everybody. That's the one nice thing, right? And you can curse. You can curse, yes. Which, which I won't be doing, but I could. So, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that I won't either. I only typically even even begin to curse if someone I'm with is cursing, and then I can slide right back into it. Uh, but I have been not cursing for so long that um that's definitely my default mode uh, unless we're quoting a character that who curses yes and then it's utterly appropriate and easy to do and fun <laughs> yes. uh, sometimes when i'll be doing my other podcast my saber podcast I, I think i've had two or three guests maybe who dropped an f-bomb right in, and i was sort of shocking and i uh, we do allow it we don't we don't bleep them but they'll always sort of catch themselves and ask if it's okay. I, sure, say whatever you want. This is an adult podcast. <laughs> uh, so the point of this for uh, people who tuned in having no idea what, what we're talking about, um, there is a new series starting on HBO in a couple of weeks. We're recording this on, what is this, the Today's 7th? March 8th. March 8th. Exactly a week from now, um, HBO is launching a new series, I believe six episodes, uh, The Plot Against America, which is uh, drawn from a Philip Roth novel of the same name. And uh, I didn't, I think the book came out in 2004. Four. I say 2004. Yes. And for some reason, even though I, I, I've never been a big Roth guy, I recognized his talent and had read a couple of his many, many novels, but and we'll talk about we'll talk about Roth, especially uh, one of our favorites, the Great American Novel. At some point, maybe this time, maybe next time. But uh, for some reason, I never read the Plot Against America, uh, or some for some reason I picked it up a few years ago, uh, maybe because it had a swastika on the cover, and just devoured it. And when I heard they were making this show, I thought, you know what, I, 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 I'm going to watch this, but I really want to talk to Jim about it. And quite honestly, the, the, my 
I'm sort of playing a sneaky trick on you because I, I decided that the best way to get you to watch it every week and then talk about it with me was to get you to do a podcast about it. And I think it worked. It did. It's, it's the only way you can get me to do a t to watch a TV show. <laughs> and, and at some point, we should talk about putting swastikas on book covers. Because <laughs> that's a whole thing. <laughs> you mean you go to the bookstore and there are dozens of not only books in the World War II section, but also in the fiction section. With and them. cooking. The cook, the cookbook of the, of the second SS division. Recipes from the East. I, I remember when I was a kid, we were at the supermarket and there was a, a book. There, you know, they were selling books for a quarter there because you know it's the supermarket, and uh, these are remainder. And one of them had a swastika on it. And the book was called The Scarlatti Inheritance, and the H in inheritance was a swastika. And I said, Oh, we got to get this. And it sat on the, the bookshelf at my parents' house for the next 40 years, and I never read it. <laughs> and I thought about it. I said, they put that swastika there to get people yeah. who are interested in history yep. to, to buy into it. When I was a kid, I if I saw a paperback with a swastika, I just automatically wanted to read it. It's the weirdest thing, right? Because it's not like we're, let's be honest, we're not exactly fans of the Nazis. But there's something about that damn swastika that makes you want to read the thing. I don't know what it is. Do you? It, it automatically indicates this is a book with intrigue, I, I think. Uh, you know, Fatherland, the, uh, another what-if novel, uh, speculative fiction about the Nazis prevailing in World War II, has a gigantic swastika on the cover. And I was reading it in a public place recently. And I was thinking, what are what are people thinking of me? Look at this monster <laughs> sitting there. Why doesn't you just Why doesn't you just read Mein Kampf in front of everyone while you're right. at it? But I mean, I don't, and I think that's um, that. Well, before we get into all of that, we could talk. I, I want to talk about this a lot. But um, getting back to the plot against America, uh, you, I'll let you sort of do the elevator pitch because you've read it more recently than I have. What is this book and this this TV show, what are they about? So Philip Roth made a, a choice to write about his family in 1940 and it, they're named after his parents Herman and Bess, his brother Sanford, Sandy and and by the way in the, in the show they changed the last name for some reason. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe his family cousins were going to sue or something i don't know but uh and and him, and him philip and yep. it's it's newark 1940 just like he was same age and everything and instead of franklin roosevelt winning the election in 1940 it's charles Lindbergh, and the country takes a hard turn toward anti-semitism which of course impacts roth family directly because they live in a jewish neighborhood in newark new jersey and uh Lindbergh signs a non-aggression pact with the Nazis and a non-aggression pact with the Japanese. And things go very differently than they did in our reality here, in our timeline. Essentially, it's a fictional version, an American fiction, a literary fiction version. Is that, is that the right term, literary fiction? I think it is. The literary fiction version of, isn't there a, what, 
a story, a novel, It Could Happen Here? Am I, am I, what, am I, what, is it, what is It Could Happen Here? That's something famous. It Could Happen Here is an independent film made and started in the late 50s and made into, into the early 60s. It took years and years to, to finish by two very young, they were teenagers when they started, and they shot this film on no budget. And the premise was that the Nazis had conquered England. And, you know, they shot it on weekends. They used all volunteer. I, I say it's the greatest independent film ever made because it's totally independent. It was made with no budget and it's incredibly successful. It looks exactly like what it's, it's supposed to look like. England being run by the Nazis in 1962. So th there are differences. Uh, in, in that one, the Germans win the war. Uh, I don't want to get into too much detail of you know what's going to be in the in the book and the show of the plot against America. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's more of an outcome based story. It's, it, right. it, it takes place after the outcome, whereas Roth's book is is while it's happening. Right. While and history. In Roth's book essentially Americans capitulate to Nazi influences, whereas. And it could happen here. I, I would assume I haven't seen it, even though I've had it on DVD for years. That I have, I have the, not only the movie and the making of documentary, but uh, uh, which, which has the great title "How It Happened Here Happened." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've not seen either, but I'm guessing that, that they there probably are some, for lack of a better term, quizlings. Oh, there are lots of quizlings. In but fact, there also there's also a fight against the Nazis, right? Right. There there is an underground. And the Americans are lurking in the distance, ready to to start cooking again with a war against the Nazis. But <clears throat> they used an actual fascist, uh, a pro-Nazi guy. They gave him space in the movie to spout his rhetoric to make it more authentic. Wow. And they caught a lot of grief for that. So, yes, there is. And, and you know, most people have accepted it. There are masters now. You know, I'll, I'll go work for the... You know the garbage, <laughs> you know the, the black-shirted garbage man, or whatever you're going to be in in, in modern England, run by the Nazis. So, j getting back to the history of this genre, um, I think the real genesis of of this podcast for me was that I watched um, the miniseries. I'm sorry, not the miniseries. The the series. It was three full seasons um, of the Man in the High Castle. Well, after you watched it. So I was, and I binged it. I think my wife was out of town for a few days, and, and then when she wasn't, I would stay up until 1 o'clock in the morning watching two or three episodes at a time. You know, crazy stuff. Um, and I desperately wanted to discuss it with you, but you'd watched it years before. So uh, you, were, you, were, you were game, and uh, we, we, did, we did discuss it, but we didn't, we didn't discuss it in great detail because it really wasn't, wasn't timely at all but once i thought let's do this thing i went back and and i read fatherland by robert harris which is a really good novel and robert harris is fantastic a lot of people know know him and um uh and then sSGB which is written by lynn dayton who's also a fantastic writer uh, they're both essentially detective stories right uh, there's a murder mystery at the center of both exactly um and I think, I can't remember which one. I guess Harris's came, Dayton's came first. I believe Harris acknowledged someplace that he had drawn inspiration. Now, one takes place in London and one in uh, right. Berlin. Right, and, and Fatherland is an after-the-fact 
book. Uh, I mean, SSGB is sort of after the fact as well, except it takes place in 1941, in late 41. So the the victory over the British has just occurred. Whereas in Fatherland, like in Man in the High Castle, which which are almost take place at the same time, uh, 1963, 1964, the the Nazis were victorious many years before and are long since settled in to their role as uh, conquerors. So what and and these are only the most I think these are probably the three most notable examples of the genre, not including the plot against America. Uh, but you sent me uh, there's a Wikipedia page that has a much longer list, uh, and I guess what I was sort of hoping to figure out with with your help is why why is this genre so popular? And yes, obviously. Uh, swastikas on book covers sell but i don't think it's just that why are why are there so many books and tv shows because these a lot of these have been have been turned into movies or or tv series um why so many about the germans winning the war and hardly anything about for example the well the only other counter really the other examples the japanese winning the war what is it about the nazis winning the war that we just can't stop. I think it's because we know what the world, we have a good idea of what the world would look like if they took over. I mean, they mm-hmm. had, we saw what they did in the conquered lands in the East. Right. We saw the, the horrors that they perpetrated. Yeah, but we saw that in Asia too, with the Japanese. I mean, not that people know those stories. It was, I believe. The Japanese, you know, the Japanese exterminated hundreds of thousands of of Asians, and which is almost never discussed. That's true. The, the Japanese didn't have a Vansi conference, though. They didn't have sort of this agenda, this pronounced agenda, the way the Germans did. And they didn't seem to do it as systematically as the Germans with, you know, camps and and looting the their victims of their the possessions and, you know, processing them in such an organized, this horrible industry that, that grew out of that. So I, I think that's why it seems like a more formulaic outcome if the Germans take over. I think that's right, but I, do you think also it's in part because, and you see this in the iconography during the war, the Japanese were were considered the other by people in the West. Uh, there were, for example, more qualms about firebombing German civilians than there were Japanese. Not that we didn't do it, particularly the the, the British. Um, um, but there, there just there was, I think, always a sense, at least an underlying sense, that as bad as the Germans were, they weren't that different from us. Whereas the Japanese were considered alien. I mean, you know, one great example, obviously, is who we threw into concentration camps and who we didn't. Right. The other thing, too, which we could get into when we talk about isolationism versus interventionism, is that we, we in the year 2020, don't understand the zeitgeist of the time back then. And we'll discuss that and try to educate ourselves and... Uh, figure out what people were thinking 
And one of the things people were thinking in World War II is that, yeah, we have to beat the Germans, obviously, but the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And there was much more hatred for the Japanese because of what they did. There, there was no Pearl Harbor moment with the Germans, right. with Americans. There was a, a general sense of outrage that, oh, they're, they're running amok all, all across Europe, but it's not directing us. We took, we took Japan, Japanese aggression personally. Right. Whereas we did not take, you know, Hitler announcing to the Reichstag on December 11th, 1941, we're at war with America now. He's declaring fact, war on I, us. I didn't even realize until reading this a book that, that, that you turned me on to, uh, the name of which escapes me for the moment. I have to look it up on my phone, even though I just finished it last night. That's, the, that's one of the hazards of reading a book on your Kindle. You don't see the, <laughs> the cover. Those angry days. You, pardon me? Those angry days. Those angry days, which I highly recommend to anybody who is interested in this podcast or the plot against America or World War II, generally speaking. It's, fa- it's really, really good. But one of the things I learned was that even after Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt still had qualms about going to war with, with Germany and, the, and, and Italy. Um, he basically had to be dragged into war. I mean, he'd obviously been taking steps over the previous year or two to help the British, but he just did not want to go to war with the Germans. And you, there are lots of reasons for that, which I won't get into right now. But getting back for a second to what I was, sort of what I was trying to uh, get to with the, the Japanese being more the other, I think one of the reasons that we find the Nazis so fascinating that's probably not the right word. Um, but why we keep coming back to these stories about the Nazis is that it's easier to imagine a detective in Berlin solving a mystery because he doesn't seem that different from a detective in New York solving a mystery. Now, we know that, of course, there were also detectives in Tokyo solving mysteries, right? Yes. Uh, the... For all of the, the if you watch a, 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 a Kurosawa film made in the late 1940s that's not one of his samurai movies, which are what he's famous for, he made tremendous movies set in post-war Japan. And, you know, aside from the general destruction wrought by bombing during the war, their lives don't look that much different from our lives. They tend to wear roughly the same clothes. They have the same fears and desires and hopes that, that everyone has. Um, so it's not that they were the other, but that's how I think that we think of them, especially that during the war when uh, that's what we were, Americans were sort of programmed, how they were programmed to think of them. Right. I um, think it's, it's easier to picture the Germans rolling across the United States and with panzer divisions than the Japanese who didn't have any armor. <laughs> That's a good point. And the Japanese didn't have any long-range bombers. Right. Uh, Nor did the Germans, but they, right. they were on their way. Right. So a German conquest just seems more likely. Yes. And more believable than a Japanese conquest. Well, let's, um, let's since I don't want to talk too much about the plot against America until the show actually starts, because I don't want to give things away. Um Let's talk a little bit about the about these alternate histories, and in particular, Fatherland, um, SSGB, and and uh, 
the man in the high castle. The man in the high castle. You know, whether or not those scenarios that we in the books are even plausible. And I think this is one of the things, quite frankly, that you and I can... Look, I'm a big fan of uh, a Ringer podcast called The Watch. And I'm sure those guys are going to talk about the plot against America because they basically talk about all the the big prestige shows, and I'm guessing that this will be one of them. My guess is that they won't really be up to speed on their World War II history. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. So I'm hoping that if, if nothing else, you and I can bring that perspective, having both of us having a long um, interest in World War Two, so uh, what do you want to start with? Well, we could talk about was there any real possibility of the Germans ever winning the war? Yes, that's a good one. So, you know, I, I think you could look at it at certain points. Uh, once they conquered France, if they had just said, that's it. We're done. We've, we've got Western Europe sewed up. They would have won the war, right? Uh, the, the English would have kept fighting, but what, what would they have been fighting? Would they have been plotting their own D-Day to, to retake France? I don't think the British could have done that on their own. Uh, it seems almost impossible given the manpower you right. would need. Right. Um, you know, most people understand that Operation Z-Lion, the the proposed invasion of Britain by the Germans could not have taken place. We saw what it took on D-Day to cross the channel. The Germans had no specialized amphibious craft. They did not have command of the seas and ultimately they didn't have command of the air. Yeah, the plan was basically what, just to sail a bunch of barges across and hope, yeah, they were gonna, hope for the best? <laughs> they were going to attach barges to ships and right. tow them and across. And then just run them, up, run them up onto the beach. Right. Uh, it, 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 I mean, I... I the, the 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 general story is that they decided not to do that because they, they never established air superiority. But even if they had done that, would they have been able to get enough guys across on barges to make a difference? I, don't, I have no idea. Uh, you know, the, the smart people say no. It couldn't have happened. Uh, in SSGB, they do it. SSGB, England is taken by a pincer movement you know, two columns of German armor surround London, right? And and London surrenders. That's that's the scenario when the book starts. Uh, London surrendered in in the early 1941, and now the whole country is under German control. And there is an underground. So, th th you know, Dayton dispatches with that problem just by saying it happened. Right. He doesn't get into the nitty gritty, which you right. can't. You can't in these books. Although uh, Philip K. Dick does in The Man in the High Castle, he explains in detail how the Germans won the war. Um, I haven't read, or I'm only a, a little bit of the way through the book, and the, the show is very different yes. than the book. So I, I, you know, in the book, in the show, the Germans won the war by coming up with the atom bomb and dropping one on Washington and saying, you know, we're going to do this to Tulsa and Dubuque and every city you've got. Uh, unless you surrender, and America surrenders. Now, I don't recall in 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 the show was there did, did, does the does America not have the a bomb in 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 the book or in the show? 
Yes, they never they never got to it. They don't develop it. So that's no. the inflection. I mean, one the of the things we can talk point. about is inflection right. points and what has to be different. Right. And one of the things I've been thinking about is that it was so impossible for the Germans to win the war that in, in the, the universe that Philip K. Dick has created, they won the war in this universe, but there's a multiverse. There are all right. these parallel universes, and yep. they didn't win the war in any of them. So basically, you're running a thousand scenarios, and they yes. only win in one of the scenarios. Right. That's the impossible task that the Germans set for themselves. Yes. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the date of December 11th, 1941, that's the date Hitler declared war on the United States. And you could pretty much say that's the day it all came to an end for him. It was just a matter of time. He was taking on the greatest sea power in the world, the British, uh, the Soviet Union, and their juggernaut. And then he takes on the greatest industrial power in the world simultaneously. That is an impossible task. Now, if he doesn't do that, um, all he does is delay the inevitable, right? The U.S. is going right. to get in eventually. It's just a question of whether it's in December 1941 or May 9th, whenever it is. Right. Let's say we never do. Let's just say we continue to provide goods and services to, the, to our allies. To, to you know, then we start sending sending all those Studebaker trucks to the Russians. Uh, don't the Russians still eventually roll up the Wehrmacht right out of Soviet Union? I, I think they do eventually. Um, of course, then I, I think without us, you can't have D Day. You can't have a reinvasion of France. Right. Uh, but maybe you don't need to to invade France. Maybe there are other right. ways. Maybe the Russians just push across and take the entire continent. Right, and that's that's another worry for post-war, <laughs> for post-war Europe that the Soviet Union sphere of influence extends all the way to the English Channel. Right. So there are a couple theories. Uh, the, the only believable theories that I've heard where the Germans could actually win the war. One is when they invaded the Soviet Union, instead of treating everyone they met as some sort of vermin. They said, yeah, you know, you hate Stalin, we hate Stalin. Here's a rifle, join us in this crusade to get rid of Stalin and, you know, help us take Moscow and, and drive the Soviets all the way past the Urals. Then they might have been able to do it. Instead, they got bogged down in all their, their silly racial beliefs and uh, trying to exterminate everybody. And that took a lot of effort and time and manpower and kept them from focusing on what the real problem was for them, which was the Soviet army, which was resurgent by that point. Well, the, the other one that I've read, and I, I, I don't think there are only like eight people in the world who are smart enough to figure out if this is, if this is true or not. But the other theory that I've read for the Germans winning is that instead of driving on Moscow in, what is it, the spring of 42, they... Well, Maybe it's in 41. No, they, for, they head for, south and take the the, the, the oil fields and, and cut off the Russians from their from their oil supply. Right. 41 was the drive on Moscow. And then right. in 42, it was that. They, they drove on the south. And that's how they ended up in Stalingrad. So, But the supposition uh, is if they, had if they had not gone after Moscow and instead gone after the oil first, that the Soviets wouldn't have had enough oil to, to carry on for a whole lot longer. I have no idea if that's true. But that's, that's something I've read. Well, one thing that I think is definitely true, that even if they had taken Moscow, it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Uh, that the Russians just 
I always say Russians, the Soviets would have just uh, pulled their tank factories further to the east and, and kept fighting. It's just a city. I mean, Napoleon found out you, you, taking Moscow was not the end, you know, the end of the party. Right. So uh, another scenario, uh, this, and this one is more far-fetched, that instead of focusing on the Soviet Union in 1941, Hitler focuses on North Africa. Right. And overloads the Africa Corps with more and more divisions and drives right through e Egypt right up through the Holy Land, all the way through Iran to the border of Russia. And, you know, takes all that oil that way, you know, take, you know, focuses on the island of Malta. Right. And takes Malta and pretty much wrests control of the Mediterranean. Right. I don't know. And, and you know, then when, he, when he's in that position, then they can, then he could turn his attention to the Soviet Union. What if, what if, uh, and we could do these forever, I know, but what if, uh, what if the British don't break the, the German code and the U-boat war goes a lot better than it goes? I mean, they're, they're, I've read all these things about how the British were, you know, put your thumb and your finger close together, this close to essentially running out of, of food, etc. Uh, when they finally solved the code, broke the code and were able to, 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 to protect their convoys. The problem, I think, is that the Germans didn't take the U-boat arm seriously enough. They didn't put enough resources into it. You know, they built those two gigantic battleships, worth, which were worthless. You know, one of them, the Bismarck, was <laughs> sunk, and the Tirpitz sat in a, in a fjord for the entire war. So, you know, if they'd taken... The money they threw at all that nonsense and, and put it into U-boats. Well, they built a, an aircraft carrier too, <laughs> right? Which never went to sea, right? So you know that's what that's what Dernitz wanted. He wanted a he wanted all subs all the time, but he didn't get it. I, but I guess you know the 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 question. You could probably find half a dozen arguments out there, and by reputable historians saying if only the Germans had done this. Right. would have won the war. And I just want I want everyone to know that when I say, boy, that Hitler screwed up. If only he had, I, I, I'm glad he screwed up. <laughs> you know, I'm glad he had these great moments of incompetence starting in about 1942 and right on through. Just about every decision he made was wrong past that point. Uh, I, I'm glad the Japanese were incompetent. I'm glad the Japanese Navy hated the Japanese Army because it made winning the war easier. Right. So when, when we... When we do these things, it's, it's you know, I, I do not like the New York Yankees, but I often find myself saying, you know what the Yankees need to do to really fix this problem? Uh, I, don't, I don't want them to succeed, but I'm a, I'm a, maybe I'm a fan of problem solving. I think we all are. Right. And that's, that's where this speculation sure, comes from. Is we all want to see a problem fixed correctly. Right. But I think, uh, I think the reason that we get off on these... Not only the alternate histories, but also the, the, in the in the novel, the fictional things, but also the what if Hitler had done this? I think it's almost like a scary movie. Yes, you know what I mean. Like, right. oh my God, if he had just, if they just protected their codes better, <laughs> we change we the wheel up under Nazi rule. That's scary. Right. I think it's kind of fun, because especially because it's it's so it's so it's such a safe scary. If that makes sense. Yes, and I, 
I have to relate a moment that I had. I was watching the final season of Man in the High Castle last year. And at the same time, I was watching episodes of the series Dust Boat. And I started to confuse the two in my mind. <laughs> that, oh, <laughs> so that this submarine campaign was successful, obviously, because they won the war. That, that literally <laughs> went through my head at one point. And... Uh, I said, why are they so depressed? Because <laughs> in, in Dust Boat, in the series, the, the, the sailors are beginning to get the impression that things aren't going well. Because uh, fewer and fewer of them are coming back. And I said, why are they so depressed? They won the war. I mean, they they're, they have a big headquarters in New York now. And it, it really was scary for a minute. It Like, oh my God, it, it could have gone the other way. What a, what a horror. Isn't it great that it turned out the way it did? Which is sounds like an incredibly naive thing to say, but it, it took a lot of work <laughs> right. for it to turn out, you know, not perfect, but... But don't you think that if you, if you give credence to some or all of the what-if scenarios that have the Germans winning the war, um, and again, there must be five or six of these reasonably credible theories, the, where at this inflection point... If Hitler had made this decision instead, um, or they had been better about changing their codes, whatever it might be, if they if 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 they hadn't insisted on switching the the in the Battle of Britain to bombing London instead of the airfields, everything's different. If you accept those, then I think you're led to the conclusion that there were many ways that the Germans could have won the war, and the fact that they didn't is something of a miracle. And I think we probably didn't, it probably wasn't a miracle. You know what I mean? No, it was a very I think practical. What was most likely is yeah. what happened. Right. And all those horror story, all those horrible scenarios, let's say the Germans, quote, win the Battle of Britain, um, if that's even possible. It's not clear to me that it was actually possible. But let's say they don't shift to, to bombing the cities and do keep hitting the airfields. Um, the, the problem is we don't know what happens next. There's an assumption that what happens next is easy to divine because of what we know happened. But the fact of the matter is we don't know how the other side is going to respond when the Germans do the smart thing as opposed to the dumb thing that they did. Um, so... It, they all seem sort of fantastical to me, all these scenarios with the Germans winning the war, which is fine. Um, it makes for great fiction. Um, but it, 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 I don't really think that the Allies were ever really on the knife's edge of losing the entire war. No, I don't either. And I think a lot of what-ifs totally discount the will of the people, the will of the people to continue fighting. Right. Um, you know, the, I always ask the question, why did the Confederacy keep fighting after Lincoln got reelected in 1864? Because their only hope up to that point was that, that McClellan got in running against Lincoln and sued for peace and let the Confederacy be as, as a new country. After that, it, it was just a matter of time. It was always just a matter of time, but that was really the last hope. And the, the Confederacy, their whole plan, their plan was never to conquer the North, never even really to take Washington. They, they knew that didn't matter. Their plan was to wear the, the North out and... So they finally said, we don't want to fight anymore. And I, I think a lot of what Hitler did 
was predicated on the same thing. Oh, the Americans don't want to fight. They're not a, they're not a warlike people, and we were not a warlike people. I know we have a, a military budget now that's um, the equivalent of what the next seven countries combined, but most people will be shocked to learn that in the 1930s, our army was ranked like 18th in the world, somewhere between Bulgaria and Bolivia or something like that. It had like 200 modern planes. Right. Crazy and, stuff. Right. We were not a warlike nation. And so someone like Hitler or the Japanese looked at that and said, oh, they, they don't have the stomach for it. Right. And I believe that's left out of most what-if equations. So if the Germans had been able to land troops in Britain in 1940 or early 1941, it totally leaves out the response of the people and what remaining army they had. Uh, that's right. And, and, and if they'd put up a fight that who knows, that might've been enough to, to, to get Roosevelt uh, into a more aggressive posture. And all of a sudden there's a stream of, of American soldiers heading in that direction. So who, we don't, we don't know right. what happens next. And that's one of the things that never really seems to be gamed out when people come up with these, what these alternate scenarios. Um, and uh, again, it's fiction on a, on a fictional level. It's fun, but it's when you read the actual books written by historians where they make the case that things could have gone much differently. Well, yes, they could have, but uh, there are so many dynamics at play. Yes. Change this inflection point. Now, good luck trying to predict the next 18 inflection points and what happened, what happens with those. Um, so it's, it's tough. Right. My favorite what if of the early part of World War II is, uh, most people know that the Soviet Union invaded Finland um, in the winter of 1939 and into, the, into 1940 and was really struggling for a while till they you know, finally threw their full weight at the Finns. And there was a, a period where the British and French were going to spend an, send an expeditionary force to Finland to help them fight the Soviets. And that what if is, in the end, the, you know, the, the Battle of France started and they called it off. But th that scenario has so many possibilities. Now, now you've got the Germans and the Soviets fighting the same enemy. And... What does that do to the timeline? Uh, I, I can't even imagine. Right. I mean, it, it pushes Barbarossa back, I would imagine. Right. I mean, and that's that's the... <laughs> you and I have talked about this before. When, when you... Unless you read a lot about World War II, it's difficult to, to understand just how many different countries were involved and we're switching sides depending on what was going on and we're going here and there and trying to figure out what to do with themselves and I, I mean Brazil for example sent a bunch of troops and airplanes to Italy in 19 I believe it was 1945 it's just one crazy example the <laughs> Finns what happened to them during the war is just almost unimaginable um, the back and forth uh, I believe the Hungarians might have switched sides at least once. I mean, it just there's just so many different. Uh, when you talk about inflection points, uh, it's just so complex that even the even the most brilliant historian, military historian, really can't wrap their brain around everything that was happening. Which is, I suppose, is why it, it's probably easier to just focus on one little bit and say all he had to do was turn the Panzer south and he would have won the war. Well, 
No. Maybe. That's the kind Probably of not. that's the kind of things they say on those History Channel shows where. Yes. <laughs> I, I was watching one one time and the, <laughs> if it was a it was on the Battle of the Bulge and the Americans were holding this this ridge and they said if the Germans broke through here the war was lost. <laughs> and I immediately well, thought of the the quote that's attributed to Patton. I don't know if it's true that he said during a. During the Ardennes offensive, he said, "Let's let's let them through and drive all the way to Paris, and then we'll just cut them off and destroy them at our leisure." So I thought that was pretty funny. Well, and that that brings me back to to the plot against America, uh, and and the whole the the battle between the isolationists and the interventionists. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more because Lindbergh's tied into that quite a bit. But we just read the. Tell me again the name of the book that I just finished. Those angry days. Those angry days, right? We thought they'd and never end. <laughs> again, it's about it's, it's about it's about those the two year run up to the war to the U.S. involvement in the war or the U.S. being immersed in the war, I should say, because the U.S. was certainly involved prior to Pearl Harbor. But uh, it's it's about the the back and forth between the interventionist forces uh, politically and the the um, the isolationists and. There's a new book just came out. It's called Agents of Influence, and it's about this spy, this English spy. Actually, it was a Canadian spy named Bill Stevenson, who set up a an MI6 station. For those who don't know, MI6 is basically the CIA, the British CIA, right? Is that close? Yes. Um, set up a, an MI6 station in Manhattan. Uh, prior to Pearl Harbor, and the, the whole idea was essentially to create propaganda that would force the U.S. into the war. Now, essentially the premise of the book is that without without this, this campaign, we the U.S. doesn't... <laughs> well, not that they don't get into the war, but they don't... Lend-Lease doesn't happen. Uh, they don't protect the convoys. They don't send the 50 destroyers, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and this guy did a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, for example, creating a map that showed how the Germans were going to carve up South America and Central America. <laughs> Com- complete fabrication um, uh, by, this, by this Canadian agent. But in those angry days, this guy's just barely mentioned, like twice in a 400-page book. Uh, and I don't think that's inaccurate. I think that the idea that all those things wouldn't have happened, they might have happened in a slightly different timetable. But for the most part, the things that happened would have happened regardless uh, of any one person or single event. Right? I agree. Something that, that people should know heading into the series and understand is the very, very strong anti-war feelings that were all throughout the West leading up to World War II. Because, you know, the, the memory of the horror of World War I, and it was horrible, was fresh in everyone's mind. And there were huge swaths of the population that were gone, thanks to the war and then the flu that followed. Um, so a lot of students in, in Cambridge and Oxford and at uh, Ivy League schools in, in the United States, signed these compacts that they would never go to war. Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford among it. them. 
yep. was an ardent isolationist. And he, he was um, among many people who became, you know, uh, well-off white men who became incredibly successful and influential after the war were rabid isolationists up right up until Pearl Harbor, basically. Right. We've all seen the photograph of Ford playing basketball in the elevator of the escort carrier that he was serving on. <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, they all changed their minds, obviously, when, when Pearl Har- Harbor was bombed. But that was in the air, and that's, that's in the atmosphere when the plot against America starts. Right, and it's worth mentioning too, and I, I don't know if this will come across in the show. I suspect that it won't because really there's no reason why it should. This isn't a documentary. But my guess is that the great majority of the isolationists were not motivated by anti-Semitism. Not that some of them weren't anti-Semites because obviously they must have been. And one of the great points that those angry days makes is that uh, many of the interventionists who were using the Nazis' treatment of their subjects as, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of, as motivation, they belonged, these were rich people who belonged to clubs that didn't allow Jews. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's one of the great ironies. Um, It wasn't just the isolationists like Lindbergh who were and, and look people will even argue about his, the, his anti-semitism I think it's pretty clear that he was anti-semitic he, he wrote enough things in his diary to suggest that leaving aside even leaving aside what he said aloud but um, uh, there were plenty of anti-semites who were in favor of joining the war um, did, didn't really want the Jews in their clubs the the percentage of Americans I saw this in, in um, and this is really more tied to the plot against America, and maybe I should save this, but uh, after Kristallnacht, there was a movement to, 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 to get 10,000 Jewish kids out of Germany. Ultimately, the English took 9,000 of them. The U.S. took 240 because there simply was almost zero political appetite in the U.S. to allow Jews into the country. I mean, it was, this was not a, a, this country was not particularly friendly to Jews prior to the war. It really took, at least the, those angry days argues, it really took finding out about the, the death camps for the American attitude to soften somewhat. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it was just hands off in general. It's, yes. it's not our fight. I, I can't stress enough that was the, the flavor of the day. It's not our fight. These idiots in Europe are at it again, and we're, we're just not going to get involved this time. There were people that were still resentful that we had gotten involved in World War I and had lost, I can't remember how many men we lost in World War I, 100,000? Right. It was pretty pretty high number in, in just a year of campaigning. And... That was in the air, and which was, I, I you know, in we, retrospect, we can agree probably that it was a specious comparison. Oh yeah, because really, there it's hard to argue that. Uh, look, I know the Germans 
committed atrocities in Belgium, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but essentially, you had a bunch of cousins pissed off at each other in World War I. Um, and it really was a different situation 25 years later. Right. And we have the, the beauty of hindsight to see that. In, in the 30s, they hadn't quite formed that opinion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hitler was, was man of the year in, on Time magazine in one year. And uh, he seemed like he was getting the trains to run on time. I think that's how some people viewed him. I don't, yeah, yeah. That, that, uh, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Man of the year until very recently. Was Newsmaker. Was impact Correct. based on your impact, impact right? Not on didn't have to be you, didn't have to be positive. At some point, I'm not sure exactly when it was in the last ten years or fifteen years, uh, that became incredibly controversial, politically incorrect, whatever term we want to use, and all of a sudden you weren't allowed to impact. wasn't It was part of the equation, but it wasn't the biggest part, probably. Right. Um. I mean, I wonder if Stalin Stalin was probably the man of the year at some point, too, maybe. Probably in 1940. <laughs> when would it have been? 41 or 42, he would have been a good man of the year? 43. He, oh, when they turned the tide? Yeah, that would have been a good year to give it to him. Right. <laughs> Finally. Good year, to be, good year to be Uncle Joe. Finally, I've won. <laughs> <laughs> How many gift baskets does a guy have to send? Do you think he made up, had he had fake covers of himself on time made up? <laughs> Who would know? Yes. <laughs> so uh, I think we're, we could wrap up soon. Uh, what are you looking, what, what, what sort of. I'll tell you what, what I'm looking, looking forward for? to in the show. What, correct, what do you think they're going to. Correct hairstyles. <laughs> and please. You seen, you've seen pictures, right? Yes. Uh, please. Can you know maybe two cars in ten have white walls? <laughs> Black wall wire on, on the on the cars, please. That's, I would hope that David Simon of all people will will not pretty it up too much, but we'll see. Do, do you know why that happens? Is that they put out a call for cars to car collectors, and people say, "Well, I'm, I want my car to look good on TV." Right. So you know, it's I'm going to bring the one with the white walls. <laughs> Whereas if you look at a picture of a 1940, uh, you know. Nine out of ten cars have black walls, and I'm kidding. I'll 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 be able to look past that. But that's unfortunately, when you're obsessed with the past, that's the kind of things you notice. And I don't I won't say it ruins the the occasion for you. You know, Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton with their big sideburns, bushy sideburns, and Where Eagles Dare. It's still an enjoyable movie, yes. but that's there. Do you <laughs> would Would you like to see? Um, Lindbergh portrayed accurately does that matter to you well the thing the thing in the book is that he is he's in the news he's not a character in the book he's not a direct character he, they, they we experience Lindbergh through Philip Roth's family right. and their perception of him that's how I feel that we should experience him don't and, they have some don't don't they have well, isn't the when, family member isn't she close to someone who is yes, in touch with Lindbergh? And they do. She does have personal contact with him at one point. So then we can see him. But right. I don't believe, unless you know, this is how you get six episodes out of a book. And by the way, I'm really thrilled that it's six episodes because I'm sure you've seen series that are eight that could have easily been wrapped up in six. Yes. And there's a lot of filler in there. So I'm thrilled that it's six. 
It means we're not going to be subjected to a lot of filler or coming up with some sort of subplot that wasn't in the book just to, you know, get us to six or eight or ten episodes. So what I, I'm thinking there won't be our first person where Lindbergh is alone without any of the characters mm-hmm. from Philip's family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, plotting or, you know, making political plans. I'm going to run for president. I'm going to show up at the convention. I, I don't think that'll be in, in there. Right. Uh, so that I'm hoping it won't be. Um, I, I think Lindbergh should be presented as he is in the book. Um, Does that mean where, when he gives a speech, for example, he says the things he said in the real world? Does that matter? Does it matter? Wow. So c- can, we, can you quote from his diary? Well, you can quote from the speeches that he gave. Yeah. Oh, you mean take something he said in his diary and, and put it into a speech, something he never right. he never would have said in public in real life, but he right. he says in this universe. This is an alternate universe. Right. So in some ways, you, you know, you write your own rules. Yes. You, you know the, well, the, y- y- I, I can't believe you said that because I, I keep wanting to jump in because I forgot to talk about this before. What drove me crazy about the man in the high castle, the the series, was that. They created this world in the first season, which was way different than the book. It added tons of stuff, which makes sense because the book is quite short uh, and really doesn't have much detail about how anything in this world works. Um, But they create this world, and then with all these rules, and then in the second season, and especially the third season, they start breaking all the rules. Right. And to me, James Mangold, the the movie director... um, I heard an interview with him on another podcast, actually, um, and he said that when you make a movie, even if it's about, even if it's Ford versus Ferrari, it's science fiction, because you're creating a world that didn't actually exist. But you owe it to the to the viewer once you've created this world to stick to the rules that you've made for yourself. And I think you know, look, this uh, the plot against America really isn't that science fictiony. Because they don't go to war, the Germans don't win the war per se. They don't. He doesn't. Roth didn't really have to make up a whole ton of stuff other than these political machinations in the U.S. But all I really care about is that w- they stick to whatever rules they make in the first episode or two. And that's all I ever care about in any fantasy or science fiction or contrafactual is stick to your own rules. You know, if if you have a device that allows you to be invisible. For half an hour, you can't stretch it to three hours. That kind of thing. Uh, just stick to your own rules. It, first of all, it, it helps. It makes it easier to write. You know what the worst one of those ever was? Did you ever watch 24? No, never saw it. Probably that. not. Well, I watched. I think I watched one season. I have a habit of doing that. Um, uh, so I watched one whole season. And the whole conceit of the show, obviously, was that we're seeing this in real time, right? Right. But he would be someplace, clearly out in the Southern California desert, <laughs> doing things, shooting people, getting shot, whatever it was, and then he's def- getting into a car, and 10 minutes later, he's two hours away. He's diffusing a bomb on the Golden Gate Bridge. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it was still fun, um, and I get why they didn't stick to the conceit in that show, because they honestly could not have made it. What really bothers me, bothers me is when shows cheat when they don't have to. And that's what Man in the High Castle did. They didn't have to cheat. 
They did because it served some other story purpose, but they didn't have to do it. They did it because it was convenient. Right, and what I've learned from writing is that you can solve any problem with one line of dialogue. I, I you know, any anything can be fixed with one line of dialogue. Right. And you can explain something away. I watched I watched three episodes of a show called October the October Faction. I'm done after three. It's it's not that good. But <laughs> uh, a character's mother shows up. The character's clearly fifty years old, and his mother looks like he could be his sister. And the actress is is thirteen year old, years older than than the uh, <laughs> than the than the, the character who mm-hmm. who plays her son. And he said, "Mom." What's with all the plastic surgery? You know, is that my inheritance above your neck? Is that where it all is above your neck? I said, "Wow, that's see, one line answers all the so questions." You, so you think it's okay if it's that blatant? Well, look, it's thirteen years, right? I mean, yeah. if you ever go to a high school reunion, there are people at the high school reunion that look ten years older than you do, and people that look ten years younger than you do. Yes, we all we all fan out as as time goes on. As Jack Donaghy said to Liz Lemon at her high school reunion, uh, when they confused him for one of her classmates, she goes, you're 50 years old, I, I'm 35. He said, Lemon, rich 50 is middle class 35. <laughs> and so I, I think it's perfectly acceptable that... Well, and, and I believe Winona Ryder is quite a bit older than the character she plays in The Plot Against America. But guess what? She looks phenomenal. Right. I pictured, to be honest, I when, when Roth described his aunt... I pictured Fritzy Ritz, Aunt Fritzy from the Nancy comic. I have no idea who that is. Oh, she's one of the hot. She's the hottest woman in the history of comic strips, by <laughs> hot hotter than Blondie, hotter hotter than Daisy May from Lil Abner. <laughs> so that's what I picture, you know, with the the rat in her hair and the the high heels, <laughs> the FM shoes and the. <laughs> So that's what I was pitched. That's the ex- expectations I have. But if, if when on a writer can come close to that, uh, then I'm all for the casting. So you haven't seen an image yet? I saw a picture. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, she, to me, she. Wh- I, I think that we both share this um, completely normal, healthy affection for a certain 1940s look. And what I saw in that picture was dead solid perfect right it's it's my favorite period in, in women's fashions it yes. just all comes together yes um it wasn't together before that it fell apart <laughs> after that and it was just all there so anything they can do with that is is aces with me yes the only thing that spoils it for me is that it's really you can't if you're going to do that look in a movie or a tv show and the women aren't smoking, it's not period accurate, which I find completely repellent because I find smoking repellent. So unfortunately, it never quite works for me. Um, but I also recognize that if I'd been around back then, it would have been just perfect. Right. Because I wouldn't have cared about the smoking. I would have been smoking myself probably. Probably. Probably be dead right now. <laughs> you, you're saying you wouldn't have made it to age 90 because of your... <laughs> Your tobacco no, be, addiction? Uh, Woody, I'd be Woody Allen's age, right? He was a kid in the 40s. Is that right? He was born in 35. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should, uh, you know, we should talk about radio days. Let's talk about it. Well, I was going to wrap it up, but uh, we can talk about it. I was going to ask you what else you wanted to talk about before we wrapped it up. Well, radio days, 
takes a place across the river at the same time as Plot Against America. He's he's over there in Brooklyn. And with a with a protagonist who's basically the same age. Same age, exactly. Yep. And for him it's all a lark. You know, World War Two is a lark. Even though he's Jewish. <laughs> Even though he's Jewish. Yep. You know, it's fun. They get they go look for Nazi submarines and uh, they do coast watching and uh, you know, collect scrap metal, listen to the radio. It's fun. Uh, it's like is it is it Hope and Glory, the British movie, where where the kids are running amok in bombed out London, and it's they're having the time of their lives during the blitz. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's the the Woody Allen take on it. Very different than Philip Roth's uh, tale of great paranoia, the plot against America. Do you think for people who haven't seen it, I don't even know how easy it is to find, but would would people be rewarded by watching? Radio days, now. Yes. I mean, I, when I say now, I don't mean now in this era. I mean as they're about to, or as they're watching, the plot against America. Yes, I think it'll put you in the mood. It's a, it's first of all, it's a really fun movie. Yes. It's really entertaining, and he, you know, he, he still cared about setting up a camera and and getting multiple takes back then, and you know where he put the camera, and. Getting close-ups of people, stuff he fight, you know, he gave up as he got older. It's a real movie, and it's it's worth very entertaining. We're now an hour into this thing. I have to be honest; I was afraid we wouldn't have enough to talk about. I was completely wrong, um, which reminds me that you and I used to talk on the phone for two or three hours at a time. So I guess I should have known that this would would go well. People don't so do that you brought anymore. Brought it up. Wait, pardon me. People don't do that anymore. Talk for hours on the phone. That's true. We, you know, we don't do it anymore. We talk. We'll talk for an hour sometimes. Right. Um, it's it's tough when you have children, and I, when we did that, I basically didn't have a job. <laughs> and I don't think you did either. <laughs> and we were both unemployed. That's probably why we did it. Um, that was my job. My mother paid. <laughs> your mother paid me to talk to you. She sent God. me a check. Talk to Rob. I, w- I wonder. I wonder how many of my friends she was paying back in the nineties. In the nineties. Um, so since you brought up Woody Allen, I think we're, we're both fans. You've seen basically all of his movies. I've seen almost all of them, although I've certainly slacked off some in the last I, I think I'm five or 10 years of the like 45 features he's done as an auteur. I think I've seen all but two or three. And I, I don't want to go into a whole Woody. I mean, th- you could do a great podcast on Woody Allen movies. This is not that podcast, but he is in the news right now. Um, he very briefly he has written a book a memoir uh, which the first thing I thought was why you don't he doesn't need the money there can't be enough money in this book to ju- for him to to spend all the time doing it but he did it and just being honest about it I really want to read that book um, his it's it's not going to be coming out anytime soon uh, his his son, uh, Ronan Farrow, uh, is published by the same conglomerate that was going to publish Woody Allen's book. And Ronan, for reasons that I'm sure everyone is familiar with, uh, was pretty upset about this and ma- went public. And the employees at the conglomerate um, backed him up. And they withdrew the book. This all happened within about three days, three or four days. Uh, so let me ask you. Um, do you want to read that book? 
And how do you feel about the publisher canceling it? I would like to read it. I, you know, and I was a huge Woody Allen fan in high school and in my 20s, especially in high school. He helped shape my comic views, as did Philip Roth with the Great American Novel. Just a key, key book in my existence. Now, can um, I break in for a second? Yeah. We haven't talked about that, in part because I haven't read it since 1984. Um, I think I want to try to read it before our next episode so we can reference it because it sort of takes place in the same time period, right? It takes place in 1943 in a, in Port Rupert, which is Newark. Okay, so, so we should talk about it, right? right? A little bit? It's another alternate universe out there. Yeah, so we definitely yeah. should talk about it. So I will read it. I will have it finished, I think, by the time we talk in about eight or nine days. Right. So but to please get, continue. To get back Thanks. to your question, yep. um, I have throughout my life separated the art from the artist. I feel it's the only way to, to function and take in a bunch of stuff. I mean, if I had looked to all the rock stars... Who I, whose music I loved as as uh, moral icons, <laughs> I would have been dead in jail by the time I was twenty four. I, I've always separated them from what's going on. I wasn't there when all these things happened in Woody Allen's life. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I don't know who to believe. Uh, it, it happened. There's nothing I can do to change that. The, the people in the company refused to publish it. The, the employees. You know, as as for the company, they can't fight that. Right. It's it's just too massive of a of a of an uprising to to say no. We're going to do it anyway. Right. With or without you, and then if they all quit, you know, you don't have a company for a while. So, yes, I would I would like to read it. I don't know what to believe. I believe that Mia Farrow was was very angry, and justifiably so. I think we'd all be angry if. Our ex-spouse married our stepchild or our adopted child. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to get into it. I, I don't know what Woody Allen did or didn't do, to be honest. Well, and, and, and Ronan Farrow makes a pretty good case. Um, and I, my, I think that my, I tend to believe him and especially his sister, who's the one who told him about the things. And, uh, but it doesn't mean I don't want to read a book by Woody Allen, especially because I would assume that the great majority of the book is about the rest of his life, which is a part of our culture. Uh, so I'm sort of, uh, in the current climate, I, I feel a little bit, I'm a little bit leery about saying, yes, I want to give Woody Allen, because he might self-publish, who knows? Uh, do I want to say publicly I just gave Woody Allen $25? Uh, I'm not sure I do want to say that, but I, I do want to read the book, even while being skeptical about his whatever claims he might make about what happened with, with his family. So it's a tough thing. We live in a, right. we live in a in an uncomfortable time. Well, I've, I've given him $10 quite a few times over the last, <laughs> uh, seeing his movies. But here, here's the thing about boycotting a movie as opposed to boycotting a book. You boycott a book, you are pretty much cutting the author author off. Maybe the editor, maybe the proofreader a little bit, person who did the cover. They're probably going to get paid anyway. When you cut someone off who did a movie, oh, that director did such and such. I mean, look at the credits at the end of the movie. There are 2,000 people working on that movie. 
Right. You're punishing them too. So I, I think with movies, it's different. Um, you know, even though the name, I, I guess you're rebelling against the name above the title, right? Well, there's that. There's also, look, if Mel Gibson gets drunk and says a bunch of horribly anti-Semitic things and you continue to support him, first of all, one person isn't going to make a difference at all. So, you know, the idea that me not going to a Mel Gibson movie is going to change the world is preposterous. But let's for a moment suppose that it, I am changing the world. Um, yes, you're going to hurt the people who helped him make that movie. But when you support that movie, you are you are improving the chance that he will get to make more movies. Which, look, and if he doesn't make, if he doesn't get to, somebody else will in his place. And all those people who would have worked on his movie will work on the other movie. So. That's good. I, I mean, in my mind. I like that. Did you, did you, did you get an A in logic? Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I believe I pulled a B in my freshman logic class. Thank you very much. One of my better grades in college. I still don't know what a tautology is, so I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> no, that's a that's a very good point. Um, I don't know. I'm just I, I think that with someone like Woody Allen, who's brought so much joy to so many of us, um, it's difficult to just say, "Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be interested in that person's art anymore or their life." I'm going to consider them a non-person. I don't want to read any books written about them or by them. It's it's a tough thing to do, and we, we and we all have to make that decision for ourselves. Which really is, for me, ultimately, what it comes down to. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer here. I don't think, not in his case. Okay, and, and you know, getting back to the you know, he's not going to make any. Why is he doing a book? I, isn't it surprising that a book is still sort of the be all and end all? in our society that the story <laughs> yeah. hasn't really been told till you put a book out. Right. In spite of we're being told constantly that, you know, books are dying and it's a dead medium. And, but it still seems to be the mountain that everybody wants to climb to tell their story at the end of the, when it's all said and done. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, I, I can, in my own little world, every year there are a dozen, maybe dozens of, of old baseball players who publish their memoirs and, uh, and the and they sell six or eight hundred or a thousand copies, but apparently they're happy to do it. Now I'm sure that many of them have, frankly, delusions that they're going to be bestsellers. Um, but they keep coming out, and I'm happy. I'm glad they do because I read a lot of them and I enjoy them. I just read uh, Johnny Antonelli's book and got a kick out of it. Why not? He had the tire shop. How did you know that? <laughs> I know stuff. <laughs> did he did he talk about the tire shop a lot he did quite a bit okay yeah most of the last chapters about the uh, it was either the good year or good rich i can't remember which but one of those i was there i was there for the transition from bias ply to steel belted <laughs> that was a tougher challenge than facing the brooklyn dodgers all right on that note uh i, I i'm gonna get out of here but uh i do want to mention um that uh, Jim did the fantastic art on our show page. Uh, Jim's a, a genius, a wizard. He put, <laughs> he put together some art that mimics the, the cover of the Plot Against America paperback. It's so much fun. Um, hope everybody sees that. 
and we, we also, Jim, should get a plug in for our theme music. Our theme Tell music is uh, performed by Johnny Dresden. It's his uh, his Teutonic Telstar. It's the the famous uh, Joe Meek song Telstar, done in a Teutonic German march way. It's pretty cool. And uh, I would assume you have uh, Johnny's permission to use that that music. I'll get it. I'll get that cleared right. up. <laughs> well. Once that's been gotten, our thanks to to Johnny for for the music uh, podcast really isn't complete without without th- without a theme. So uh, so we appreciate that. We appreciate everybody who is listening. And uh, our plan is to uh, watch the episodes. First one is March Sunday, March fifteen. I will watch the episode along with that evening's episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm for as long as those are going on, and. Uh, and then Jim and I will record. I, I'm, I'm thinking that we'll both watch on Sunday, whenever possible. We'll record maybe Monday, Tuesday at the latest, and get the new episodes up on Wednesdays. We are going to have spoilers, so don't listen if you haven't watched the previous episode, or you will be sad. Well, listen anyway, because you know we we don't want to, we don't ever want to say to anybody, don't listen. Uh, okay, yeah, listen anyway. All right. Don't worry about the spoilers. It's, it'll be more fun to hear them from us than watch it on in the show. I agree. Don't you think? Yes, absolutely. All right. All right, this was fun. Thanks, buddy. All right, take care.